0: When I look at Web3, it feels like these blockchains are open source databases that we all can use, right? So Web1 was the open source Word doc, right? Web3 web <laughs> uh, is the open source Excel.
1: Happy Tuesday, and welcome to Not Boring Founders. I'm your host, Paki McCormick. And this is a podcast where we talk to the people building the future. Today, we have Mike Saunders, the co-founder and CEO of Captain. Mike's an experienced entrepreneur. Back in the 90s, Mike founded a company called CampusFood.com, which he sold to Grubhub. And then he worked at Seamless Grubhub for four years, including through the 2013 IPO. Now, Mike's back with Captain, which is starting out as a Web2 food delivery platform, but he has plans for how to incorporate some Web3 tech and tools in order to solve some of the problems with food delivery that he helped create while he was at Seamless Grubhub. Currently, the big food delivery platforms aren't great for the restaurants that use them, and I think you and I are probably sick of paying for all the different delivery and service fees and all of that, and there's a lot to fix. I really enjoyed this conversation because Mike, someone who came from within the industry, knows exactly where it's broken and why, and has really specific ideas for at least experiments to run on how to make it better and how to give more power back to the restaurants and the people who order from the restaurants. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Captain, CEO, and co-founder, Mike Saunders. Mike, welcome to Not Boring Founders.
0: Hey, thanks for having
1: me. So I think a fun place to start here, and this is not where we normally start on Not Boring Founders, but because you have so much experience in the field that you're working in, I would love for you to tell me a little bit about your history and your background and what you've done up to this point. So
0: I started a company back in 1996 called campusfood.com. So we were one of the first online ordering companies out there. And we were solving for how do I get my tuna hoagie back in the day before people had broadband. So we started the business. I was a junior at Penn, couldn't get my tuna hoagie. Just enough, the internet was really just starting. And so it was able to build the business. From there, uh, over time, took it to about... uh, about 300 schools around the country I have a lot of customers who have fond memories of campus food from their college days. And ultimately, back in 2011, as the local scene got hot as well with like Groupon and Yelp and all those companies, we got acquired and rolled up into Grubhub. In 2011, we were acquired by Grubhub. It was a $47 million acquisition, moved from New York to Chicago to be part of the executive team and and really joined, joined that rocket ship the following year merged with a company called Seamless out of New York, further growing our reach and finally taking it public in 2013. My journey there was I, I left the end of 2015 and just watched the whole industry continue to evolve.
1: My wife, when I told her that we were having this conversation, told her a little bit about your background. She said that she was a big campus food fan. So wanted me to send a thank you to you for that. And on a personal note, I'm, I love that you went with tuna hoagie. I feel like I, I love tuna hoagies and it's a weird thing to love. And so I'm glad that we, we share that in common.
0: Oh, excellent. It's still a guilty pleasure.
1: Yeah. The, the right tuna hoagie. I do it super simple, just lettuce and cheese and tuna salad and it, it can be really, really good. So I'm glad that we have that in common. Tell me about your experience at Grubhub Seamless, the, the big kind of food conglomerate. What did you learn there?
0: From the early days of with Campus Food, it was really about just, just getting the technology into the hands of, and really solving the problems. With Grubhub, it really was more of a, uh, the learnings there was really more of a distribution problem. Really, We're solving for this problem that is really, you know, you're only as good as your delivery zone, right? So the, the real challenge here is as many, we really needed a large uh, amount of supply on the restaurant side to solve a similar problem for everyone. And so that was part of the challenge was how do you take what absolutely works, what gives customers a great experience, and then just really scale that out.
1: And is there like a rule of thumb? I remember when I talked to Josh Moore at Uber in like the very early days of Uber, it was something like you had to get a car to you within four minutes. Did you have a similar rule of thumb for how you thought about those local clusters?
0: It was never as specific. Like people expect when you order food, you're going to get it in 30 to 45 minutes, right? The real challenge is, do I have my local favorites? The real issue there is To make a cluster really work, nobody has one favorite restaurant, you have a handful of favorite restaurants. And so how do you make sure that when we're presenting basically a food court, that we're giving somebody a food court with great options?
1: makes a lot of sense. And I thank you for your work because I am a Seamless Grubhub uh, addict. I I order all the time. I haven't gotten as far onto the uh, Uber Eats or DoorDash bandwagon, but last night I ordered from Seamless. So thank you for what you did there. So you left at the end of... 2014, 2015. What did you do from there? And, and how did you end up getting into Web3 crypto, the whole, the, that whole world?
0: Sure. So, so I was there for four years. I hopped off the end of 2015, took a bit of a sabbatical. I adjunct at Northwestern, has a great entrepreneurship center there, uh, and really just wanted to re- reboot my tech skills. I'm an engineer and, and really wanted to just figure out what's new. Really found crypto through CryptoKitties, through the original NFT project, CryptoKitties. And that was a really big aha moment. In an entire world and career of being the middleman, I think there was just really intellectual curiosity around how this technology can start continuing to disrupt.
1: That's funny that you put it as being the middleman. Middlemen and women have been very useful and, and provide a lot of the services that that we love and use every day. But obviously there's a rake in the middle there. What did you experience while you were at Campus Food and Grubhub Seamless And then what did you see, even in CryptoKitties, and it's amazing how many people I talk to who are engineers and these like hardcore tech people who actually got in through these cute cats. But what did you see in that that fixed some of the problems that you experienced in your role as a middleman? Sure. Look, when we
0: started Campus Food, we were charging restaurants 5%. It was really a 5% rate. And we struggled as we grew to increase that rate to six to eight percent as we scaled the business out. Part of the challenges is with middlemen, like there's absolute value in, in the discovery layer or around middlemen. We're really providing that endless shelf. But as rates go from five to eight to 10 to 20 percent, it really is uh, Bill Gurley says, a rate too far. right? And so I think what we're finding now is you've got a, a ton of really localized subscale restaurants. That are trying to stay alive with razor thin margins and just this very large rate that is being charged for a bundle of services that not maybe every restaurant needs.
1: And so there's been this kind of Web2 push to unbundle the DoorDashes and Uber Eats and Seamlesses of the world. What was it about crypto in particular that you thought was useful and what was your journey from CryptoKitties to Captain?
0: Sure. I think the same curiosity around the internet in 97 is the feeling I personally felt around crypto in, in 2018 or so. I think there was something really interesting about this concept of the internet and HTML and really being able to access information wherever, right? And it was really democratizing that feeling. Again, through the campus food journey, we launched a second site called all menus. It was an SEO play that we were you know, Google. We saw Facebook go with social and then DoorDash with apps. This wave felt much more like the original internet web one, but instead of just reading information anywhere, you could exchange information anywhere. And that felt like a new concept that really had not been seen since the last cycle.
1: That makes sense. So can you tell us what captain is to break the third wall or fourth wall here? We've spoken about the business before, and I think it's one of those ideas that wormed itself into my brain as something that just seems like a right use case for the technology. So what are you doing at, at Captain? So we started
0: Captain back in 2018. Again, with the backdrop of the ability to unbundle marketplaces and rebundle marketplaces, I think the more we got involved with crypto, the more we realized we are just way too early. So around the same time that we were experimenting with that, we just kept on getting calls from restaurant owners that were complaining that these third parties kept on raising their fees and hiding their data. We are just pack To a lot of these restaurants when the receipt prints out and they really got disintermediated from their own customers right and and that really was more of a feature not a bug in the system because in that model the middlemen are able to extract the most amount of value as a as a wholesaler of orders not really as an enabler of of customer relationship and so we again when i say we uh, we're a team of 12 about eight of the 12 of us were were extra or seamless and getting together to solve this problem so, so really, we, saw, we started Captain to, just because online food ordering seemed broken, right? We really wanted to help these restaurants. These restaurants have a ton of problems, and really, there was no clear solution to really enable them. So the goal was, step one, can we just fix some basic problems for these restaurants and use that as a, as a sandbox to build technology, team, and product to then ultimately get to where we ex- expect to be on our web-free journey.
1: So would you describe yourself now as what you've built so far? And I know that you started with kind of a Web 2-ish ordering site. Is your vision full Web 3, Web 2 plus a little Web 3, Web 2.5? Like, how do you think about what the right solution for restaurants and for customers ultimately looks like?
0: I think Web 3 is an enabler, right? I really go back to how would I have described the internet, like, before people understood the internet? And it's the internet enabled for that reading of information web three will enable the exchange of better information between merchants and customers so i really see like i do see the ultimate vision of this being truly web three i think the, the challenge is always what is the journey to get there i think a use case of ordering food everybody eats that's, that's a great thing about ordering food but if we went full web three today we, we wouldn't have the customer adopt. You know, again with campus food we needed people to be comfortable using the internet using broadband you couldn't take a credit card online for years after the consumer internet really started here. I think we're in that phase right now. And really, to you, you need to be Web 2.5 or even 2.3 uh, 2022.
1: Which slice of Web 3 are you going to go after first? There's this idea that you brought up of kind of unbundling kind of the credit card, which is not a way that I've seen this, uh, seen this described before. So I'd love to hear you explain how you're thinking about going after that piece.
0: I think ultimately... This needs to be something that empowers consumers and also empower merchants, right? I think in the middle of any exchange, the transaction is the perfect version of this, right? So I think from a credit card standpoint, you really have Visa in the middle as like an interchange with acquiring banks and merchant banks on on each side and and really a rewards program on top. I look at this as what is the right rewards program that, you know, not my rewards program, but really, what is the right rewards program between customers and merchants that, that uh, can give the most value to the most consumers and really empower the most merchants? How do you find that equilibrium on pricing based on an individualized basis?
1: Yeah, so Alex Tanko came on, uh, not boring, to talk about the idea of token-gated commerce. And so at Shopify, the way that they're thinking about it is that Web3 creates this whole new type of user which is a user with a wallet or a person with a wallet who shows up to all of the sites that they use on the internet with a wallet full of things that say something about who they are. He brought up this concept of NFTs letting people both fit in and stand out. You're part of a broader NFT community and then you own a particular NFT. But either way, kind of this like whole collection of things that you have in your wallet allow you to show up and allow the merchant or the restaurant or the storefront or whomever to understand a little bit about you, is the right way to think of this is, as kind of token gated commerce for this very high frequency, everybody eats category?
0: I think what we're all trying to figure out as as this evolves is what is a wallet, right? We've gone from browsers to apps to wallets. I think that the bet we're making is that there is more of a verticalized wallet or skin on top of your core wallet right? Everybody eats, everybody travels. There's certain use cases where I want to mix the web three world with the web two world to just give me a personally better experience. And a wallet is a mixture of identity and payment and, and loyalty and how those things come together, I think is really where the opportunity is.
1: Could you paint the picture for maybe today what a transaction might look like with Captain and with Supper Club? Like how just end to end it would work on both the merchant and the consumer side?
0: Sure. So look, I'm Captain. We try to empower these restaurants today with technology in the background. We really see ourselves as an enabler of technology. We want the online ordering technology to be commoditized down to zero as fast as possible. You shouldn't be paying somebody to place an order on the Internet anymore. As inflation is rising, restaurants should not be paying a higher percentage fee to, to literally place a exchange an, an order. And so really, where does that value live? That value is, is in some sort of rewards or, or other services that, that, again, get unbundled and then repackaged. On Captain Today, we want our restaurants to just really be able to capture that customer the, the most efficient way possible. But again, I, I think that for us serves as a sandbox where we can start experimenting with these things. Like really, what is a, a wallet and how do people interact with it? I think the big bet we have to make, uh, that, that I'm willing to make, is that some version of digital cash becomes a standard in three, five, ten years down the road. The idea that I can have a digital dollar just feels like the right direction where this is all going. And and I think that becomes one of the pillars for opening up the ability to build on top of. And, and I think that becomes one of the core features of a wallet.
1: Yeah. So the idea of I mean I am actually writing and I don't know when we'll will release this, but I'm writing a piece on circle and USDC and It does, the more and more you dig into stablecoins, the more and more inevitable it seems. Obviously, a bunch of infrastructure needs to be built around them. But this idea that you can have something that behaves almost like cash, but with internet superpowers, just feels like there's no way in a decade that that's not going to be how money is exchanged on the internet.
0: I think we see it today. I like that with internet superpowers. We see today with restaurants offering gift cards. And there's a tremendous amount of friction involved and closed systems uh, around this semi-digital cash, they ultimately can get unlocked as more and more people adopt. I just don't think with, with respect to a stable coin, I think when you're buying a pizza, when you're buying a taco, you don't want to have to worry like a, a dollar is a dollar, right? And There are other things like utility around this ecosystem, around rewards, maybe where, where some of the more traditional utility coins can come in. But But most importantly, I think when you're purchasing with digital cash, it should feel like digital cash.
1: Amen. So tell me about the experiments that you've been running with with Supper Club and and what it is.
0: We've been building Captain as the business and the set of tools to power restaurants. Uh, We've launched a consumer brand called Supper Club, right? Supper Club is our attempt at aggregating customer demand and customers to each other to really be the wallet for getting uh, restaurant rewards. Really more of an eat to earn uh, concept. And really, we want to be the, the, the first place you go when you're thinking of where to order from, really layering in some discovery, layering in all the great things of why Wallet should hopefully continue to, to grow. But but, Supper Club is our attempt at that.
1: And it's, it's interesting because right? I, I think Play to Earn, super, super popular, and then had a bit of a downfall as the markets crashed. And so people are kind of wondering what the sustainable model is, where the money comes from in these things. One of the things I love about your model is that it's very clear where the money comes from here and what pool of money you're taking from. So, in the eat to earn model, like where is that money coming from? What do people spend it on today, and how will restaurants spend it in the future?
0: So, well, I think you know because these third parties today hide data and charge twenty to thirty percent. It's pretty easy to find where the money comes from, right? A, a traditional order on Grubhub or, or or another third party paying approximately twenty percent for the marketing services approximately another 10% for the delivery itself and the delivery driver, and and approximately three to 4% for credit card fees, right? And so really that's the pool. And above and beyond that, when a lot of these third parties nowadays, uh, there's upcharge menus. And so there's additional service fees, menu items are more expensive. So I I think a lot of people have had the experience where you're, you're ordering 15 bucks worth of burgers and then your checkout, you're at 45 bucks somehow.
1: So many times.
0: Everyone loves ordering online. Everyone loves ordering for delivery, but something feels broken. This goes back to what's broken and where's the money going? How can all these restaurants be suffering? And everyone complaining about these high fees, like what's, what's the delta there? And so our experimentation around Supper Club as the wallet and and the center of this is really to empower the customers to to really go direct, but really give the, the merchants powers to aggregate and partner with each other in a way that allows them to, uh, you know, a little bit of game theory. I want to partner with my neighbors, but I don't necessarily want to be in the same. Like, this is not a DAO necessarily where we're all voting on the same thing. But this is a uh, consortium ar- around frenemies.
1: <laughs> a consortium, a consortium of frenemies. I like that. I'd like to go future looking. I know you have to actually build the details here, but three years down the road, what would a supper club enabled rewards program potentially look like? A day in the life of me as somebody who orders way too much food. On the internet like what would my experience be what kind of rewards would i be able to get what kind of things would the restaurants need to know about me how would they work together as frenemies like paint paint that picture maybe a couple years out if kind of the current track of, of experimentation plays out
0: we look to the future again you've got your favorite merchants right your favorite restaurants and they may or may not know that, that you love them as much as you do. When I look at the world of, of restaurants, watching the arc over the last 20 or so years, restaurants are really their own type of creators. The creator economy, they really have a following. They have favorites. They have really loyal customers in, in that respect. I look at the analogies here of like, as all the news organizations unbundled, right? And, and a lot of people have their own substacks and podcasts and whatever you may call it, packy, right? Like, how do you how do you engage with your audience, right? I think restaurants have a similar challenge, and so I think the Web three layer of tools will allow for better communication between restaurants and their customers. And what I'd love to see in a couple of years is that you know they have the ability to reach you and really vie for your attention, right? And and so when you're going to a third party site right now for a list of restaurants, you're just getting whoever's bidding the highest, or you know, the algorithms are not as smart as as, as they should be because the of restaurants you could choose from are pretty small. And really it's optimized for value capture, not value creation on both sides. And so how do you as a consumer use this to receive rewards and to pay and to discover opportunities from local restaurants? And how do they get to you directly again, without all the friction?
1: Makes sense. So one of the things that I like about the way that you describe this is that it's you know, people call it the the value layer of the internet or talk about the frictionless exchange of value, but you you seem more focused on the frictionless exchange of information. What kind of information, you know, will I need to keep in my wallet for a restaurant to understand things about me? Or are there other places they can get information to understand about me? Like, tell me about the restaurant's data layer that will allow them to figure out that I'm the right kind of user.
0: I'll back up a little bit with respect to, you know, what we've built so far, because, You know, again, we really are on the Wild West here, like in the Wild West. We're on the frontier building this. I think part of what we've been building is to really learn how this evolves, right? I think we all have the the models where this goes. This is going to look a lot like Web2, but for for X, right? We started by building on uh, a blockchain called Solana, right? I'm sure your audience is familiar with. They they were the perfect um, foundation for us in that, you know, it's very low transaction fee. You weren't going to pay the $10 gas fees for pizza, right? But, but it allowed us to get going and to build some really powerful tooling. So, you know, we've done things like, you know, like building digital gift cards for restaurants. We've done things like offering up NFTs that unlock real world value, real world coupons when you present that NFT on one of our websites. You know, we did a partnership with a uh, national brand, uh, Fat Burger, where there was a, giveaway of 500 NFTs that if you took that NFT to the website, to a fatburger.com website during the month of June, it, it unlocked a free burger, right? And so like we've been watching how people use this. We've been watching really the, the adoption curve, people getting excited for the NFT itself versus the NFT that unlocks value and really trying to piece together all these different things. So look at all the challenges today is, is again, we are very, very, very early very few people actually have wallets, right? Like, how is this going to play out? What does wallet adoption need to be for this to become more mainstream?
1: Can you tell me a little bit about what you learned through the Fat Burger experience? Like how many people got the NFTs? How many people actually use those NFTs to redeem the burger? I don't know if that's proprietary within Fat Burger, but I'm just really curious to hear like what you learned about the type of people who are who are getting an NFT and exchanging that for a burger.
0: There's the crypto DGEN and then the Crypto Curious, and then there's everybody else. And I think over time, more and more people move move up and up the pyramid. We had 500 of these NFTs. We built it in a way where it was one per customer as best we could. Uh, you know, they were all claimed in 19 minutes, and it was a great success. And we had a pretty active Discord and, and Twitter, engaging uh, d- during the, uh, the giveaway. You know, what we saw was there was a lot of excitement just about getting involved, even if there wasn't a fat burger nearby. The numbers, I don't know if it's proprietary or not with respect to Fat Burger, but it was a pretty high redemption rate for the people that lived near. The, the the fat burger uh, there's about a hundred fat burgers around the country but people were excited just to be part of these these events I think what it comes down to is really buying these nfts are really one step in gamifying events and it allows people to, to interact with each other online in a way that you know these kind of pop-up events that happen that people get excited and they're more ephemeral that way so I think there's something really important there to, to draft on it's not about giving out coupons it's really about Creating these temporal events that, that people can come together
1: on. I love that. So, if one of the concerns, you know, with with the more centralized ordering platforms, is that they're they, in the Bill Gurley phrase, they they take a rake too far. What's the potential business model here? Again, understanding that it's all still kind of experimental, but how do you think about capturing some of the value that you create for these restaurants and for consumers?
0: Sure. Look, look ultimately, like this is an underlying e-commerce business. Ultimately restaurants are charging consumers for services. I think ultimately there is a model where restaurants are paying, right? The the, the question becomes, are they paying 20% on every order or are they they truly paying for for added value? I don't know if this is the right analogy or not, but I think we've all seen what happens when cable companies get unbundled into streaming services. And we may or may not love the new streaming services because I have all of them. I think I'm paying more. But with restaurants... It's a much more fragmented industry, right? There's a couple hundred thousand restaurants in the U.S. alone, and, and really the unbundling of them allows for other types of services to come together to rebundle in a different way. And so, so the way I see it is, ultimately, restaurants are very happy to have a marketing budget, but they shouldn't be paying a tax on their same customers. Which if I go back to the idea of identity and data, these third parties are really great at optimizing the data for their use, not for the individual stakeholder use. So I think you said it, the minimally extractive uh, protocol comes into the mix. Like how do you allow both sides to work better together, and move around the pieces on the board so everybody wins?
1: How have restaurants received the idea so far? Is is there like an aversion to doing anything crypto? Is there excitement around the potential to kind of take back some of the power? Is it a mix of both? I'm sure you have a, a pretty wide range of connections in the restaurant industry. Like what's the response been? The
0: space has pretty much been one of the last to adopt new technology over the years. With early days of CampusFood.com, we were placing orders online and faxing it over to the restaurant, right? It wasn't until maybe almost 15 years later, did restaurants adopt things like the tablets that you see, you know, there's a dozen tablets in a restaurant location now. I think we try not to talk too much about the technology as the unlock, as opposed to what it does, right? So I think every restaurant, if you're a restaurant owner, you probably became one because you wanted to be your own boss, or you really, there's a certain sense of independence in the the restaurant community. And really, we try to talk to the problems that we're solving and, and how they win as opposed to the word crypto.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I, I just was thinking about, have you watched The Bear yet?
0: Everyone tells me to watch it. Uh, you you know, have to next on my list. Yeah, you have
1: to watch The Bear. There's this one episode, episode seven in season one. There's only been one season, but episode seven, I think is just like a one shot, no cut uh, episode. It was like 20 minutes long. Gave you the kind of like agitat that you get from something like in uh, the movie Uncut Gems. But the thing that stuck out from what you just said was that the whole team kind of resisted this one person's idea to do online ordering. It's a sandwich shop in Chicago, you know loyal old customers, and then somebody says that they should put it in the restaurant ordering system, and just throughout the episode, there are just tickets coming in and in and in and in that they can never handle. The guy eventually just like knocks the thing off the shelf and and says, "Screw it." but yeah, I, I would imagine when you have so many other things going on in a restaurant, the last thing you want to think about is adding any new, compl- any new complexity to your workflow. Look,
0: we say we have to solve the operational challenges first of the uh, restaurant owner, then followed by, then only then can you get into the marketing opportunities, right? And, and I think, again, all these guys have the same problems, but they all express so differently in so many different types of restaurants that you could see how the industry has evolved, And how, again, I guess the middleman is able to capture so much of that value in what they do.
1: So now, near the end of the episode, I'm going to ask you the question that I normally ask at the beginning, which is what the world looks like in 10 years if Captain is wildly successful.
0: Look, again, I think it goes back to will digital cash become more prominent? Will you as a consumer have more power? Right. I think ultimately, you know, 10 years from now, assuming we're wildly successful with the launch of, of the Supper Club app and really empowering restaurants this way, I think you as a consumer need to be able to gain value from what you do in your data, right? You know, again, one, one example is you look at like a business like Facebook, right? The advertising model, they capture the value for. What happens when you go into an exchange with your own data, right? With your own data, what can you get for it? And I think food is a great way to walk through that example. You know, hi, I'm Mike Saunders. I love tuna hoagies. This is where I order from. What do I get, right? Or, or what are you willing to, like, remind me that you exist The local restaurants. I see an entire world where everyone is, you know, there is not, like, everyone can compose their data in different ways as they see fit, right? So you can keep the privacy when you need to, but at the same time, you can get value for your data that otherwise is being... Sold on 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 you know, outside you know, data markets right now, but you get no benefit from.
1: Yeah, I I absolutely love that framing, and I think the kind of data ownership piece is one of the things that I'm most excited about here, because I think one of the challenges with the framing around data and you know the Cambridge Analytica scandal is like most people don't really care about their privacy, and most people don't really care whether Facebook makes money off their data, or at least not enough to do anything about it. And so I think this framing where it's like Facebook is evil and Google are evil for making money off of your data just like doesn't really resonate. But I do think that there's this whole world of opportunity that exists when people can own and permission their data in ways that aren't confusing and are easy to do. Right now, if you want to, I think that thanks to data privacy laws, you can go to Facebook or Instagram or Google and download all of your data. And it takes, for the internet, a comical amount of time. I think I tried to do this with Instagram recently, and it takes like two weeks or something to get your data, which I don't know why that would be the case on the internet, other than I'm sure that that's like the max that they they get under whichever regulation they're following. But I have no idea what to do with that. I think there's going to be a bunch of tools built that make that a lot easier, make it easier to own your data, to permission your data. And then things like Supper Club that make it easy to actually do things once you have that data. So that's a part of this world that I'm really, really excited for. I think
0: that's exactly right. It's not that Facebook and Google are, are evil in what they do, or, or you can have your opinion on whether they're or not. It's it's that they're the only game in town, right? I, I keep on looking at like, why web three? Like, like, can this be solved with web two, right? And what I keep coming back to is, you know, again, like the open frictionless exchange of, of information and data is possible, right? It's not that I don't care or not if, if Facebook's getting the value if they're giving me something decent in return. It's that I have no other option. So if tools exist or if there are services out there where I could monetize my own data, right? Then then why not, right? Like so, you know, it's it's a whole wave of new opportunities open up, and I think that's what gets me excited about this space.
1: I'm going to push you on that one a little bit because you're you're a tech person and I am not. You're an engineer and I am not. Um, and you've built most of your career. Using kind of web two tools and technology, you've said that you were the middleman, what would stop me from being a web two company that says, "Give me all of your data and I'll make sure that it gets to the right place or like what is it about the the web3 tech that as an engineer gets you so excited that it's the right way to solve this challenge
0: my engineering skill like when i when I first solve problems, I end up in like SQL a lot right from that's my uh, you know everything looks like a, like a database to me and when I look at Web three, it feels like these, these blockchains are open source databases that, that we all can use, right? So web one was the open source Word doc, right? Web, <laughs> web uh, three is the open, so, uh, open source Excel. And, and I think because of that, then we can all look to the same source of truth for building out different applications or diff- different services. You know, it's not that a web two company couldn't put things on the blockchain. It's that I think they'd be hesitant to partner or let anybody partner and make it truly composable.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And I think that if even one company wanted to share and be open, it's hard for all of the other companies to then come in and trust their particular database and trust that that company is not just going to take advantage of getting all the information. So there's something about that credible neutrality that it's not like your one local restaurant is saying, hey, all of you guys, like let's team up together. It's that there's just this thing sitting in the middle that they can all tap into that none of them controls.
0: I use the Web3 terms. Like uh, these these restaurants have all been rugged in the past, right? The initial promise with all these third parties is share your data with me. I'll be the online marketer and I'll drive you extra business. And it works until it works too well, right? And once it works too well, you have no recourse, right? So, you know, theoretically with with this more open composable model, there's tons of recourse every step of the way.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. How do you think about If you launch a token, if you fully decentralize, if there can be kind of like partially central apps that sit on top of kind of this public database, what's your thought on building at the application layer, what the right approach is and knowing that none of this is a securities offering or anything like that, just, you know, as someone who's thought a lot about this, what do you think about where there needs to be decentralization and where there doesn't?
0: The term of progressive decentralization really resonates uh, well with me. On the restaurant side, I think, again, these guys all want to work together if there was a true set of rules, right? Could you tokenize those rules and and really allow allow them to have some sort of uh, of system where they trust the more they add to the mix, the more they get back, right? The whole reason being a middleman is so great is because you get a network effect, right? So a lot of what excites me about the tokenization of all this is how do you pull the network effect into some sort of shared token, right? I think there's there's obvious parallels with a rewards program itself on the consumer side, but there's also the ability to you know turn your base of 100,000 restaurants into 100,000 marketing partners and really have them participate and know that they're attracting value more than they're creating, but it really is one plus one equals three because that network effect takes hold.
1: Mike, this has been a ton of fun. Where can people find you? Where can people find Captain, and where can people try Supper Club?
0: Absolutely. So, so please go to gocaptain.com. We're in private beta of Supper Club, supperclub.xyz in the app store. We're running private events right now uh, for specific markets and specific restaurants. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Saunders3000, S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S 3000.
1: That's a great handle. Mike, thanks for coming on.
0: Uh, thanks for having me, Patty.